What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. I am your host, your friend, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, ear lover, former Victorianologist, current Georgianologist, and uh, all-around friend of books, Michael Ian Black. I am delighted, as always, to be sharing Frankenstein with you. Um, Some doings in my life. Gee, it's been a, well, it's been a difficult week here in the wilds of Connecticut. My tone may be chipper, my heart is heavy. Uh, lost a friend this week, a friend of 20 years. And uh, I'm not going to say much more about that, but I did lose a friend this week. And and, uh, it was uh, unexpected, and it was, as these things always are, uh, very sad. So we've been dealing with that here in the mansion, uh, in the wilds of Connecticut, when I come to the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library to escape that sad fact and to think about Frankenstein. Of course, I open my mouth and what comes out but that sad fact because it's pretty much weighing on me uh, pretty heavily. That being said, the air here is clean and crisp. Christmas is uh, nipping at our heels. I have done almost no Christmas shopping because I have no desire to buy gifts for anybody because I don't want anything and I don't want to give anything. Is that the Christmas spirit? Seems like it might be. Also, we, Martha and I do this dance every year where we tell each other we're not getting each other anything because we don't want or need anything. This year, Martha pointed out to me on some website some outfit that she wanted, like some vintage outfit from, I don't remember who the designer was, but it was like, you know, this one of these websites where you can buy used clothes, used fancy clothes at a, at a tremendous discount. And she's showing me this and going, isn't it gorgeous? And I'm going, I don't know. 
Like, I, you know, if you think, if you say so. And she's like, oh, I just think it's gorgeous. And I'm like, are you telling me you want this for Christmas? And she's like, no, 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 no. I just think it's gorgeous. And I say, because I, I, say, I say, just tell me if that's what you want for Christmas, even though it's on the expensive side, you know, even though it's designer cheap clothes, it's still designer clothes. And so it costs a little bit of money, you know, and uh, she goes, no, I was just showing it to you. I'm like, why would you show it to me? Like, what, like, what opinion am I going to have about this outfit? It's a dress, this long dress. Uh, and she's like, I don't know. You have good taste. I'm like, she has never said I have good taste in our entire marriage. So I'm like, just tell me if this is what you want for Christmas. And she's like, no, I don't want this. I'm like, okay, fine. So the next day she's like, I bought that dress. And I'm like, I'm like, why didn't you just tell me that you fucking wanted the dress? She's like, well, you can give it to me for Christmas. And I'm like, fine. When it comes, I will wrap it and we'll put it under the goddamn tree. If we even have a tree and you can open it and that'll be your present. So that's, that's the amount of Christmas shopping that I've done. Um, annoyed, petulant Christmas shopping. I already know what I'm getting for Christmas because there's only two things that I want. And I told Martha, this is what I want. A new pair of slippers and a little shaving mirror, fogless shaving mirror. Because I shave in the shower and then I have to do my sideburns by feel. You understand? Total, total outlay on my gifts, probably about 60 bucks. I don't know if the kids are going to get me anything, maybe. But you know, they don't have any money. Are we getting the kids stuff? Martha is. She likes to buy for the kids. I mean, I like to buy for the kids too, but she like she already had it in her head what she was going to get. So I've done almost no Christmas shopping. I don't feel like I'm in the spirit of Christmas. It's been a terrible year for a number of reasons, many of which you know, some of which you don't, because they're personal to me. Um, and I'm sure you all have your own personal reasons why this was a good or bad year yourselves. But we come here for distraction. That's what obscure is. It is kind of mindless pontificating under the guise, the veneer of mindful pontificating, right? Like there's really a fine line between clever and stupid, as they say in Spinal Tap. And I feel like this podcast, my job is to walk that line, mostly on the side of stupid, you know, occasionally veering into the side of clever. Because I have to keep reminding myself that I am ignorant when it comes to all things literary. Like, I'm really not very well read at all. I like to think that I am because I am a liar even to myself. But the fact of the matter is, I'm not. I read a lot of a certain kind of book, and then I sort of, you know, dabble in a lot of other kinds of books. But to say that I'm well read in the sense that I understand uh, literature, I understand the context of literature, I understand literary tradition, I understand what I'm reading when I'm reading it, like all of that would be false. And I suspect many of you are the same, because most people are not particularly well-read, and we feel inferior to those who are. That's just the way the culture works. You know, you can, you can wear your literary knowledge as a kind of badge of pretension. Although I guess it's not pretension if you've really done it. And if you've, if you've really done the work and you've really, a bird just flew into my window, which is perfect. We've been getting a lot of dead birds at our house, just flying into windows, you know, and then, and then Martha will go out on the front step and go, oh God, oh no, and pick up a woodpecker that has uh, smashed its face against my window and bring it in and make me look at it. And then I have to feel bad about the woodpecker. 
in addition to all the other things I feel bad about. Uh, just to finish the point, you can wear it as a badge, you know, of this is a thing that I've done. And then, you know, maybe you want to talk about it. Maybe you want to talk about Silas Marner to other people and nobody wants to hear it. So it's like the, it's like the most worthless badge in the world. You know, it's basically like, um, what do they call it? Flair when you're a, a waiter at TGI Fridays. You know, you put on this little badge of flair, and it's meaningless. Do I sound like I'm down? I hope not. Chapter 5. It was on a dreary night of November. And then there's a footnote. Why is there a footnote after November? We know what November is. It's the 11th month. God damn it. But I, I have to go because there's a footnote, so I'm obligated to read the footnotes. Chapter 5, it was on a dreary night of November, according to, okay, so there, okay, there's something here. According to her 1831 author's introduction, Shelley began her original story with these words. Okay, fine. I don't care. Not that interesting. I mean, every author, like you start in one place, right? And maybe, and, and, you know, inevitably that moves. Inevitably, the first line doesn't become the first line. It moves later, it moves earlier. I mean, I guess it can't move earlier than the beginning, but, you know, it gets exorcised altogether. So it was on a dreary night of November, not the best sentence, that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils. Okay. So Frankenstein has been hard at work for, what is it, like a year, year and a half, putting together his big buddy, you know, his, his, his golem made of parts. And... It looks like he's done it in November. With an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, I collected the instruments of life around me that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was already one in the morning. The rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out when... By the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. Well, I mean, I feel like I have to stop and acknowledge this. So in one paragraph here, he has finished assembling his creature, and then we know not how he infused a spark of being into the lifeless thing. We don't know how that happened. There were instruments involved, the instruments of life. He infused a spark of being, and it opened its eye, its dull yellow eye. It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. How can I describe my emotions at this catastrophe? Why catastrophe? Why catastrophe? That's what you were trying to do, my dude. Young Victor Frankenstein, I was trying to make a guy. I made a big buddy. Why is it a catastrophe? Or how delineate the wretch whom with such infinite pains and care I had endeavored to form? His limbs were in proportion, and I had selected his features as beautiful. Beautiful, great God. His yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and arteries beneath. His hair was of a lustrous black and flowing. His teeth 
of pearly whiteness, but these luxuriances only formed a more horrid contrast with his watery eyes that seemed almost of the same color as the dun white sockets in which they were set, his shriveled complexion and straight black lips. Well, I guess that's why it's a, cat- a catastrophe, because he looks monstrous. Um, beautiful. Great God. I didn't understand what that meant, but I think he's saying, like, uh, beautiful. Like, what the fuck? Great God. No, he's not. You know, I think that's what he's saying. The yellow skin, the muscles and arteries scarcely covered by the skin, his hair, his pearly teeth. But then his watery eyes that seemed almost the same color. So he's got like uh, Game of Thrones, like the ice, the ice people have, the White Walkers that they have. And it's creepy. And his shriveled complexion, his straight black lips. The different accidents of life are not so changeable as the feelings of human nature. Wait, what? The different accidents of life are not so changeable as the feelings of human nature, meaning human nature changes the different accidents of life don't. Okay. I had worked hard for nearly two years for the sole purpose of infusing life into an inanimate body. For this, I had deprived myself of rest and health. I had desired it with an ardor that far exceeded moderation. But now that I had finished, the beauty of the dream vanished, and breathless horror and disgust filled my heart. Unable to endure the aspect of the being I had created, I rushed out of the room and continued a long time traversing my bedchamber, unable to compose my mind to sleep. Wait, what? You went to sleep? Or you were trying to go to sleep? At length, lassitude succeeded to the tumult I had before endured, and I threw myself on the bed in my clothes, endeavoring to seek a few moments of forgetfulness. Wait, I don't understand. The thing is alive. The thing has opened its eyes, breathed hard, convulsed, and you're like, all right, well, time for bed. I mean, that doesn't make sense to me. You've got a living creature there. Uh, you know, I'm picturing laying out on a table, you know, some sort of like surgical table or something. Uh, The instruments of life arrayed before it. It's eight feet tall. It's monstrous. You've just finished two years of your life's work, and it worked by gum. And I understand the horror and disgust. I don't understand that your reaction to that is like, well, time to hit the hay. Like, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. For one thing, you'd be scared, right? You'd be creeped out. You'd be like, how the fuck am I going to go to sleep when I have this living eight foot tall big buddy laying in the laboratory, just kind of sitting there breathing, grunting, agitating, and convulsing? Like that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. At the very least, maybe you'd strap it down or you'd do something, right? He didn't even say like I locked the door behind me. Like you don't know what this thing is going to do. Can it even move on its own? Like, what is going on? Going to take a little Franken-Pitt stop on Obscure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, back to the book. Um, so I endeavored to seek a few moments of forgetfulness. Good luck. But it was in vain. I slept indeed, but I was disturbed by the wildest dreams. I thought I saw Elizabeth in the bloom of health, walking in the streets of Ingolstadt. Delighted and surprised, I embraced her. But as I imprinted the first kiss on her lips, they became livid with the hue of death. Foreshadowing! Her features appeared to change, and I thought that I held the corpse of my dead mother in my arms. A shroud enveloped her form, and I saw the grave worms crawling in the folds of flannel. I started from my sleep with horror. A cold dew covered my forehead, my teeth chattered, and every limb became convulsed. When, by the dim and yellow light of the moon, as it forced its way through the window shutters, I beheld the wretch, the miserable monster whom I had created. He held up the curtain of the bed, and his eyes, if eyes they may be called, were fixed on me. His jaws opened, and he muttered some articulate sounds, while a grin wrinkled his cheeks. He might have spoken, but I did not hear. One hand was stretched out, seemingly to detain me, but I escaped and rushed downstairs. I took refuge in the courtyard belonging to the house which I inhabited, where I remained during the rest of the night, walking up and down in the greatest agitation, listening attentively, catching and fearing each sound as if it were to announce the approach of the demoniacal corpse to which I had so miserably given life. 
Yeah, that's why you don't go to sleep, dude, because you end up laying in bed, tossing and turning, having bad dreams, and then you open your eyes and there's a fucking monster standing at your bed. There's a fucking eight foot tall, big body, big buddy standing at your bed, looking at you, making inarticulate grunts. So we have at last confirmed Frankenstein sounds or creature sounds, Frankenstein's creature sounds, you know, the, that's what I'm imagining the creature is sounding like. But it's kind of amazing. The thing can get up and walk around and lift up the curtain of a bed and put out its hand to detain Victor Frankenstein. But I like that it said a grin wrinkled his cheeks. What kind of grin? Was this a grin of like, hey, how's my baby? I'm alive. Why don't say maybe? Let's jive. Like, what is that grin exactly? What's going on? Is it just like a grin of horror, like a rictus, the way, you know, you you sometimes see like pictured in movies and stuff like the grin of the dead, like that kind of thing. So then he like flees. He goes into the courtyard. He's pacing around, vaping, going, what the fuck am I going to do? What the fuck am I going to do? And then let's see what happens. Oh, no mortal could support the horror of that countenance. A mummy, again endued with animation, could not be so hideous as that wretch. I had gazed on him while unfinished. He was ugly then, but when those muscles and joints were rendered capable of motion, it became a thing such as even Dante could not have conceived. I passed the night wretchedly. Sometimes my pulse beat so quickly and hardly that I felt the palpitation of every artery. At others, I nearly sank to the ground through languor and extreme weakness. Mingled with this horror, I felt the bitterness of disappointment. Dreams that had been my food and pleasant rest for so long a space were now become a hell to me. And the change was so rapid, the overthrow so complete. Morning, dismal and wet at length dawned, and discovered to my sleepless and aching eyes the church of Ingolstadt, its white steeple and clock, which indicated the sixth hour. The porter opened the gates of the court, which had that night been my asylum, and I issued into the streets, pacing them with quick steps, as if I sought to avoid the wretch whom I feared every turning of this street would present to my view. I did not dare return to the apartment which I inhabited, but felt impelled to hurry on, although drenched by the rain which poured from a black and comfortless sky. I don't quite understand the geography of this story. He has an apartment, right? He lives in, I guess, a building with other apartments in it. He is not isolated. He lives in a town, right? Ingolstadt. And, or, yeah, I guess he lives in Ingolstadt. Um, And he has in his apartment a creature which has already demonstrated 
its ability to get up, move around, lift things, put out its arm, mutter incoherently. It was born, quote unquote, like like a couple hours ago. It's already doing this shit. So how is he leaving this? How is he just leaving this thing alone in his apartment? Like at the very least, it seems like you go to the neighbors and you say, listen, I'm running out but for a little bit, but just so you know, there's an eight foot tall reanimated corpse in my apartment. If you should hear some shuffling and grunting, that's what that is. And if it should come knocking on your door, uh, I would suggest keeping the door closed. But I'll be back in a few hours, just so you know. Like, that just seems like the neighborly thing to do. It's odd to me that he keeps retreating from this creature, even though he's among other people. It seems like they are owed some sort of explanation for what the fuck is going on in apartment 6G over there at Frankenstein's place. It's just uh, irresponsible, wildly irresponsible. Now, I guess that's in keeping with character, with Victor Frankenstein, that he is doing wildly irresponsible things. But if your goal is to create life, it seems like you wouldn't want to put other lives into jeopardy through your having done so. So he's out there walking around the streets, the wet streets. You know, nature is passing her judgment down on Victor Frankenstein. He's miserable. The skies are black. He's looking around every corner for this creature, you know, worried that it's going to be there. He can't even go into Sunglasses Hut, you know, to buy a disguise because it's six o'clock in the morning. So they're not open yet. So he's just, he's just wandering around aimlessly. I continued walking in this manner for some time, endeavoring my bodily exercise to ease the load that weighed upon my mind. How, dude? It's a little late for that. How is exercise going to help anything? I traversed the streets without any clear conception of where I was or what I was doing. My heart palpitated in the sickness of fear, and I hurried on with irregular steps, not daring to look about me. And then we have uh, about six lines of poetry here with an asterisk. So we are told it is from Coleridge's Ancient Mariner and that it is the author's footnote. So Mary Shelley herself, I guess, inserted this and then said, hey, by the way, this is from The Ancient Mariner. And of course, we've heard about The Ancient Mariner earlier, the anachronistic poem which so inspired Walton. So here's the, here, here are the lines. Like one on a lonesome road who doth walk in fear and dread, and having once turned round, walks on, and turns no more his head, because he knows a frightful fiend doth close behind him tread. So it's that image of, you know, somebody sort of hurrying down, down the cobblestone streets knowing they're being pursued, turns behind them, you know, turns to look behind them to see if it's there, whatever it is pursuing them, doesn't see it keeps going on, but knows that they are being hunted or perhaps haunted. So that's what's going on with Frankenstein. He's just, you know, ambling, rambling, jogging through the streets of Ingolstadt, uh, looking over his shoulder, wondering what to do, wondering what's coming after him. Um, and that image of the having once turned round walks on, 
calls to mind the, uh, who is it, Lot who turns to Saul? Lot's wife turns to Saul. She looks back at either Sodom or Gomorrah, one of them, turns to Saul. Don't look back, it says. Don't look back. She looks back. Boom. She's a salt lick. Continuing thus, I came at length opposite to the inn at which the various diligences and carriages usually stopped. Here I paused. I knew not why, but I remained some minutes with my eyes fixed on a coach that was coming towards me from the other end of the street. As it drew nearer, I observed that it was the Swiss diligence. It stopped just where I was standing, and on the door being open, I perceived Henry Clerval. Well, what? All right. You know, his friend Henry Clerval, who he left back there uh, in Switzerland, and now is suddenly in Ingolstadt at the moment of Frankenstein's greatest need. So that's just a happy coincidence. Uh, so Henry Clerval, seeing me instantly sprung out, my dear Frankenstein, exclaimed he, how glad I am to see you. How fortunate that you should be here at the very moment of my alighting. Nothing could equal my delight on seeing Clerval. His presence brought back to my thoughts my father, Elizabeth, and all those scenes of home so dear to my recollection. I grasped his hand and in a moment forgot my horror and misfortune. I felt suddenly, and for the first time during many months, calm and serene joy. What the fuck? Look, let me tell you something. As somebody who was visited by horror this week, okay, I don't give a fuck. You are not going to, in a moment, forget your horror and misfortune and uh, uh, feel calm and serene joy, okay? Like, it, I, unless you're, like, bipolar or schizophrenic or something, like, you're living through a nightmare, my dude. And your buddy comes by, and you're like, hey, it's great to see you. And it probably is, and there probably is some relief, maybe some immense relief at seeing a friendly face. But the idea that you're going to forget that you have a big buddy back there at your apartment that you've animated from the instruments of life and who is basically uh, a creature so hideous that not even Dante could have conceived it. But Henry Clerval shows up and you're like, hey, let's go get a drink. Like, it's just, it's just not believable to me. It just isn't. Okay, so I welcomed my friend, therefore, in the most cordial manner, and we walked towards my college. I thought it was pouring out. I thought the skies were black. Clerval continued talking for some time about our mutual friends and his own good fortune in being permitted to come to Ingolstadt. Uh, you remember his dad didn't want him to go. You know, his dad was like, no, you're going you're gonna to take over the shop and I don't need you to get no fancy book learning. Like, just be practical. So Clerval says, you may easily believe, said he, how great was the difficulty to persuade my father that all necessary knowledge was not comprised in the noble art of bookkeeping. And indeed, I believe I left him incredulous to the last, for his constant answer to my unwearied entreaties was the same as that to the Dutch schoolmaster in the Vicar of Wakefield. And now I guess he's quoting the Vicar of Wakefield. 
I have 10,000 florins a year without Greek. I eat heartily without Greek. And then there's a footnote. Good, because in this case... Uh, okay, so the passage continues. And in short, continued he, as I don't know Greek, I do not believe there is any good in it. So that is from Oliver Goldsmith, the Vicar of Wakefield, 1766. And it is unlikely that this part of the story would have taken place much earlier than 1766. This is a continual problem that we are discovering with Mary Shelley. It's possible. It is possible that this took place later than that. So we'll, we'll give her this one. Um, but his affection for me at length overcame his dislike of learning. He's talking about his dad. And he has permitted me to undertake a voyage of discovery to the land of knowledge. So then Frankenstein says, it gives me the greatest delight to see you, but tell me how you left my father, brothers, and Elizabeth. Very well, and very happy, only a little uneasy that they hear from you so seldom. By the by, I mean to lecture you a little upon their account myself, but my dear Frankenstein, continued he, stopping short and gazing full in my face, I did not before remark how very ill you appear so thin and pale, and look as if you had been watching for several nights. You've guessed right. I've lately been so engaged in one occupation that I have not allowed myself sufficient rest, as you see, but I hope, I sincerely hope, that all these employments are now at an end and that I am at length free. Uh, not likely, dude. Not very likely at all. So let's leave it there. Let's leave it with Frankenstein meeting Clerval on the streets of Ingolstadt. They are reunited. They are joyful. There is a big buddy lurking somewhere. And we do not know how Victor is going to explain to Henry why he can't have the guest room. Because there is already somebody sleeping there. Or rambling there. Or grunting there. Or being just terrifying there. It's, uh, it's a curious interlude, I would say, or incident that befalls Victor Frankenstein when he meets Henry Clerval. It is a not altogether believable incident. In fact, I would say it is an unbelievable incident in this book of unbelievability. However, when as a writer you set up a world, right, however crazy it is, like you expect people to still act like people. And I understand Frankenstein might be in a little bit of denial about what's going on back at the apartment, but it seems like they wouldn't be chatting amiably. At the very least, Victor would, you know, he'd, he'd let Clerval ramble for a bit and then he'd say, hey, Henry, I kind of need your help with something. W would you mind coming to my apartment? Um, like that, maybe would make a little bit more sense. The kind of chitter-chatter and how's my dad, how's Elizabeth, how's your dad, like all of that seems very superfluous in this moment. But everything feels superfluous to me in this moment, including this podcast. That being said, the superfluous is sometimes the most necessary. And so I am grateful for this necessary distraction. And I hope all of you are enjoying your weeks. And I will see you soon on another unbelievable episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu.
Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein was produced by myself, Michael Ian Black, Robin Lynn, Jennifer Brennan, and Mary Shimkin. It was recorded in the wilds of Connecticut at the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library. Theme music by Craig Wedren. If you would like to support this podcast, please join us at patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. This is a podcast that does not receive any outside funding other than the funding that you yourself give it. So if you would like to support it, please do patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. <laughs>